that is something most people or most students ask me before we before we come. Like, what is a a good paper from from my point of view? Because that is an uh, that's a really easy question if you follow all the steps. And I think the 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 major question behind all that is how do I write? How do I write a good paper? Welcome back, everyone. Welcome to the With the Right People podcast. Um, it's yours, Crispin Schultz, and today's guest is Timo Lowens, Professor Dr. Timo Lowens. And um, today's episode is going to be interesting for anyone who's ever going to write anything scientifically. Um, and this is exactly the challenge that I am seeing myself confronted with at the moment because um, I'm uh, writing my final thesis uh, in my studies and now I'm really just going into um, academic writing and going into uh, scientific research and I'm, I'm currently reading studies and just to kind of get a feeling for it and um, write to write my own uh, thesis at the end so I thought why not bring on a good friend and um, an expert in that field which is Timo Lawrence in that case Timo has a PhD in psychology and is a professor in uh, work and organizational psychology he has himself published over 20 studies uh, as well as assessed reviewed um, and evaluated countless studies and academic papers uh, of colleagues and also uh, his students so I thought, you know, who, who would be a better person to talk to than to you, Timo? And I would say welcome to the show on that note. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm happy to talk about science and scientific writing because um, that's my daily business. I'm probably can tell a lot about um, scientific writing in general um, and Keep in mind that it might differ from science to science. So something might be specific for psychology. Um, but I think I have a kind of a general idea of what scientific writing is after doing that for around about 10 years. Wow. Um, and, you know, when, when I was preparing for this, I simply... I took all of my questions that I came up just right from the beginning when I started writing my thesis um, and put them into a document and then kind of looked at what what structure might make sense. Um, so I thought I'd just kind of go through this with you. And um, first of all, as, a, as an introductory question, um, I would love to go into what actually, you know, what qualifies good research and, you know, good academic uh, writing um, for you over you, you know, from your experience? Good research. So there, there are two different uh, parts of it. First of all, is it good research? And good research is research that is done very rigorously um, where, where people show me, well, um, we did the right tool for the right job statistically or whatever you do in, in your part of science. And then presenting me the data in a comprehensive way and showing you what did you do, um, what did you use to for the analysis, um, how was the data collected. So presenting me everything 
um, that I so in, the, in best case I could go into my into my lab and recreate this. And if there's a, a good question in a, in a finding in an answer for a good question, that would be good research for me. Good writing is kind of another level. So there are really, really good research researchers out there who are not that good in writing from time mm -hmm. to time. So you can have really good research, but it's kind of boring to read. <laughs> um, and then there is good research with combined with good writing. And that makes things interesting because right now we are competing for a lot of ideas around the world. And if you, if you can, if you have a skill in writing and you do good research, you can present your good research in a different way. And good writing is a mix between elegant sentences. And I, I like good sense. Sometimes I like interesting words in writing, a good title. Um, so if your title is really, really, really long, and so people, people don't want to read that. If, if you pick up a paper and you have 500 papers to read and the paper says, um, well, the relationship of the big five with uh, variable X uh, compared to variable Y and that on the aspect of blah, 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 um, you lost the reader. But if you have a, a smart title or a, um, a funny title, for example, so there's, there's a paper by, I think, Loftus um, that says, well, Tales from the Crip. Uh, which is a smart wordplay, uh, just of the Tales from the Crypt horror series or horror comics. And it's about false memory from, from your childhood while you were in the mm. crypt. So it's Tales from the Crypt. And that is a smart title. And if people reach that level of kind of a good storytelling or strategic scientific storytelling, then you have a really well-written paper. Hmm. That's... That's a comprehensive answer. Uh, I, I, I do, uh, I do see, um, I do see the, the the points in it. And now, you know, to get you to give you a perspective, um, me and then everyone listening who might be not as experienced as you in uh, in the practice of you know creating that piece of science. Uh, first of all, research, but second of all, the writing. Um, how do we manage to get there? So um, I would love to kind of see, and maybe you walk us through the procedure of conducting research, uh, maybe from the from from the steps from the idea to the submitted paper at the end. So it all includes, you know, the whole finding the idea um, and uh, conducting research, analyzing, and also writing and having that all together, which you know can be an, an enormous and maybe confusing process from time to time. I, you know, I imagine that that's the case with researchers as well. So I'd love to for you to kind of walk us through and like, ask you questions along the way. That would be perfect. So we start with the beginning, the question. So what is a good research question? First of all, most of the time, or in my experience, is do something that ignites your passion. 
So if you go out there and ask a question you don't even care about, that, that is, you see these people from time to time in a conference just presenting their work and they are bored by their own work. So, and that is really hard to watch. And it's, it's even harder to work on something you're not passionate about. So is there something you want to ask the world, the universe, whatever you want to ask. If you're in astrophysics, you probably ask the universe. Um, if you're in psychology, you're interested, why are humans behave like that? And so it begins with that question. So is there anything I want to know? And anything, is there a puzzle piece that might spark my interest? A puzzle piece of knowledge I don't have. And then it is the first step or the second step after uh, first step after that in the process is to go online or in your library and conduct research. So first of all, you want to, did someone else have an answer for the, for my question? So what are the previous answers to these, to the question or what kind of, of theory would make sense to answer this question? So you read a lot. That is the moment where you read paper after paper. And the more you read, the deeper you will get, the, the better your idea of asking the question will be. Because asking a question about stuff you don't know anything about is can be creative, can be fruitful, but you will get a better idea of what is out there and what is missing in the pieces and the puzzle piece of knowledge that is out there. You will know which piece is missing. And if you read discussion parts and papers, you will see people have a call for action or a call for research. And you will see that in your field of research, people will call out, well, we need more of this research, or we need this question answered, um, or this field needs more research, then you see, well, obviously there is a reason to ask my question. Um, sometimes, and, and you'll have to ask yourself, is that a question that needs an answering? Not, not every question you can do research on is a question you should research on. And from that, it's reading, 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 and then sharpening your idea until you come up with an answerable question. That would be the, the second step. It's like, is it possible to find an answer? And is it possible to, to get a good model out of it? And with that, you have to understand that most people start really, really complicated but understanding that every theoretical model I create is, or most of the theoretical models we create in, in psychology, for example, they are an easy version of a complex life. So it's a simplification of a very complex thing is creating a model that I can test. Because it's if you think about humans, it's really hard to test everything that goes on in a human and a human does during a day. Um, so we have to come up with, with a simplification of that behavior. And do I have some, 
Do I have a good groundwork for my question? Do I have a theory I can build upon? Is there a good explanation why that should be? Or the, the, my research question should be create the hypothesis I'm creating. So that that would be that is a really hard part, and that is a part that is part reading, 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 and reading some more. And then there's the other part, which is playing with ideas in your mind. And sometimes throwing to ball, the ball into your inner team and let them discuss about it, then to the, to the reader. And it's like, well, does that fit the, the, the current literature in my field? And then the ball comes back. And most of the time it, it gets sharpened a little. So, uh, but you have to play with, with ideas. It's not like I wake up and I'm like, well, I want to have this research question. <laughs> Sometimes I, I see stuff and, and I have an idea or people on my team come to me and have an idea, like a, like a, that field would be interesting to me. And then as well, go back and play with that idea. Come back with, with, with some ideas we can have a look at. Um, because this part really takes some time. And... The next step would be to work on, on kind of an expose, kind of an, uh, a short paper um, to, to sort in your mind. It's, it's kind of a, well, you have these ideas flying around in your head. And then you you start to to write down everything. It's not the you can you, if you do that in a in a very um, precise way, you can use a lot for the paper you're writing later. But for the first of the, it's it's to sort out your mind. It's to get clear what's inside. Does it make sense? Everything I everything I think about. Can I put this in in writing? Can I see that? Um, what kind of tools do I need to answer my question and to plan everything ahead? And that is the idea when it comes to scientific stuff like pre-registration, like pre-registering your, your research, because at that point, before you start collecting data, you should have an idea what you want to do when the data comes in, because you're planning to collect the data in, in a certain way, and you have a question before you go out and collect the data. Um, so that is the idea where, where all this pre-registration stuff and, and open science come in, because at that part, at that moment in your research, you could probably write up everything from the introduction to the method until the data analysis or even the data analysis telling people well I want to I want to answer my uh, find an answer to my hypothesis one two three with this and that test um, and then your what will be the next the next step would be data collection <laughs> so where, where do where do you find your data um, how do you not only manage to, to get data, but you want to have good data? You don't want to just have people filling out and being annoyed, your questionnaire in psychology, for example, and are not really interested in what they do. <laughs> and they're like, well, I want to get this over really quick. Um, so you want to collect good data. And, and 
who do you need or what do you need and if it's not psychology to collect this data um, so in in my field as a as an organizational psychologist is I cannot use data from from kids in a school that, that would make any sense or so so where do I get data that is interesting for my research that that can answer I need a specific population if I'm interested in the influence of of time pressure on nurses and how this would affect their well-being during their work shifts I cannot collect data in management or in schools or with students that wouldn't make any sense I need nurses to do that. I need nurses and, and I need their subjective everyday experience. So it's really important to, to find a good source of data. So if you do something, if you're interested in, in the growth of mushrooms in biology or uh, something else, you, you cannot do that with sunflowers. That, that I, I'm not sure if I'm right here. Uh, maybe there's a chance to collect it. But... You need good data. Then you, you, you need, most of the time, you need to think about where do I get my data? Because most people think, I, well, I, I put up a link online. Why, why aren't people just filling out my survey? I only need 2,000 and there are kind of a few billions on the planet. Um, so that is, that is important to think about that. Where do I need, where do, where do I find people and why should they collect data for me? Give, give away their, their data. Um, telling this, all of this, and um, especially thinking about surveys and good data, I have to go back one step. You see, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a straightforward process because you have to, to, what kind of data do you want to collect? Do I want to, mm. do I, no. What do I research wanna, method do you choose for yes, to answer what, what your kind of about? research methods and so and what kind of especially in psychology what kind of survey do I want to use so is that a good questionnaire is that a valid questionnaire um does the questionnaire do what the questionnaire tells me what it's supposed to do and especially in psychology and that is very specific to psychology is um, unlike other sciences, we, we, most of the stuff we talk about, we cannot observe under a microscope or a telescope. Uh, we cannot, if, if you want to see a planet, you can see it at one point. You, even if you need Hubble or the new web telescope or the, the web photographies, well, that's amazing to collect data. Um, but talking about love or talking about well-being or talking about anything in, in psychology, that is a latent variable. That is something we cannot truly observe. We cannot observe the concept of love. So we need something that we can, that we can observe. Either it's, if people show this and that behavior, that is a manifestation of love, or we ask them, and then you have a look, do my questions I want to ask, do they make sense? Is that a, a validated questionnaire I'm using and does it make sense in my part of the world? So especially 
for culture sensitive stuff. Uh, and that is, if you go to organizational culture, it's, it's a different organizational culture in the US than it's being in Western Europe. So you have to do these questions make sense in, in my culture, in, in my part of the world. Um, do they, do I, do I ask the right questions? And I, if you, if you translate it to a more abstract versions, it's the same, I think in every science, do I collect the right data? Do I ask the right questions? Do I look in the right place? And that is the step before collecting the data. But then the data collection comes in and then you have your data. And uh, after the data came in, well, you start to, to analyzing your data and you should know what kind of tool you need to answer your question. So it's not like, well, this is the best method. Um, out there and, and there are many ways to roam. Um, but you, you have to find a reasonable um, idea why you use that tool. So don't come up using every tool you find, like what's in the data. <laughs> that, that wouldn't be very, um, a, that wouldn't be a proper way to do science. Just ask, well, well what's in the data? Um, you can do that and it's done in, in data mining and, and explorative stuff. So if you have an absolutely no idea, you need to start somewhere. But if, you, if you're using that idea of testing a hypothesis Either it's to be refuted, or if the data speaks for it, um, you you have to use some kind of analysis, and picking the right tool for the right job, that is mostly the the idea here, and well then finding an answer to your question. Either it's uh, the data speaks for it, or we have to refute the hypothesis, and then it's writing. Then it's the whole process of writing that stuff down and bring it into a comprehensible way. And I think there are all, all these steps I just talked about are steps where students or even, even some pro researchers struggle from day to day because it's not always easy to, to find the next right step or to come up with that idea, to comprehend all that knowledge that is out there um, then to, to find the right tool, the right questionnaire, where, where do I get my data? How do I uh, get the data? Um, how do I collect it? Uh, do I have help to do that? Um, what would be the right statistical tool to answer my question or the, the, whatever your methodology is? And then writing. Some Every person struggles with some of these parts of research, I think. Uh, yeah, you know, since I've, um, you know, get, I've been getting more into the topic of research, I really gained a lot, a lot of respect for um, researchers and, you know, and their work. And I, I see it as one of, um, you know, one of the most um, complex and um, when it's done, then, you know, comprehensive way of problem solving and, you um, yeah, that, that's something I learned along the way, which is, you know, what, what got me fascinated with it actually myself, um, just because I feel like, you know, there's so many steps and then oftentimes there's no clear way, clear path, and you kind of have to go in that process where you, um, you don't know an answer and 
maybe for a day and for another day and then at some point there's an answer that will come up and you know that's something i find really fascinating because um, that's a powerful skill you can translate into everything else and so you know that's something i learned actually um to really value about studies that i have not before that much um and you know thinking about um exactly that sort of problem of being confused along the way um could you talk about that so for example um let's say we start out and we start with our reading and we read all these papers and sometimes you know they might be a bit more difficult to understand but we keep reading um but we just realized man we're reading so much but like how do we maybe share your strategies how do you kind of keep track and put all these ideas together to to have that make sense is there any strategy you found for yourself is that just any general advice you would give into like students or other researchers going into that process and being prepared for all that messiness of of the work so to say it's well it it depends on what kind of type you are so there are people who can really work that out with mind maps so if you if you're very visual and you have a well this idea is in that corner and the other idea is there and how do i bring them together um there are these types of people um for me mostly i i benefit from a from a brain that pretty much is a sponge so my brain sucks up everything and for me most of the time it's playing so i need play time so my my brain i can upload a lot of stuff in my brain and then i need to to go into a metaphorically child mode and just combine these ideas like can we combine this with that can we can we destroy that idea and recombine it with other stuff and start collecting those ideas other people are collecting notes so people some people can can work with with small notes like i read this and i just come up with an excel sheet and have a few notes well this paper says that the main uh issue in this paper was this and the main issue in in, in the other paper was that and so they they start writing up stuff and come up with a with an idea they can go back to and I think it's it's kind of a find a way that works for you and um be more anal about it than you should be um because a good a good um a good collection of knowledge you will benefit from it in a later process so even if i say well my my brain is a sponge if i if i'm not writing anything down or make any notes or ideas sometimes i scribble i have i have papers that are full of of scribbling somewhere and um i have one of those glass walls where you can write down your ideas or visualize your ideas and i think for me that is one of the best ways that i use to come up with an idea and is to visualize it at one point so i use my 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 glass wall and i'm writing on it and i i try to come up with the with the model i want to test 
And when I can visualize it, I can test it. And with that, even I, I worked at one point in my career, I worked with, with a lot of veterinarians. And so, so we, we did a study with um, early career veterinarians. And I had to, I was sitting down with all these veterinarians and, and they know their job much better than I do. And I was like, well, I'm here just to, to, to help you figure out a way to analyze this and to, to come up with a model. So we glued all the constructs they were using on magnets. And we had this huge wall and we're creating a model on, on magnets. So we could switch out certain constructs and come up with like, does this visualize your idea you are having doing this research and um, why should construct a go there and construct b be influenced by a or whatever the idea is so you need to have an answer for everything why is that in the model and why is that there in the model so is it influenced or does it influence someone else or something else and for me, this really helps um, to scribble on my glass wall, to visualize more. If I can visualize it, I'm fine. I have a problem if I cannot visualize the whole thing. And that's what I mean. If you, there are some people who, can, who are not really good at visualizing stuff. They're good at reading stuff or then they're haptic people. Um, so whatever works for you, but you have to find a way to to bring this, all this inside your head or inside your Excel sheet or wherever you collect your, your readings um, into a comprehensive way, into an understandable way where you can start working with it. That would be my general advice for, for starting new research as well. Play with it, work with it, visualize it or audio tape it, whatever works, whatever whatever is the the sense you you can most well, or utilize in a good way for yourself that makes sense uh l let me tell you um what what came up in my in my mind when you were saying this so you know i thought you know this makes total sense uh, and i would i would understand how you could come up with an idea for the um for the let's say uh, for the paper uh then no, I, I ask myself the question: When you read a, a, a you know a scientific paper, it's very exact. It has you know it's not just you know I had this idea and I put it together and that's it. It's like you know I had this study which I went back like this many years to that point which you know that author said and it's very very like dense and very um like deep. Um, so would you recommend when starting out um, and reading all these papers and so on? To have that exactness with you, or would you say, would you say in the first step, just throw that off and just be kind of that free and play with like simple ideas, or do you kind of keep track? I was just imagining like you would kind of have to keep track of all the, you know, oh, in this paper I would quote this like this, and I have this here. Would you say don't worry about this at all? This will come later, and you will remember. Just trust yourself to that you will remember where you kind of got this from, or would you take notes on the side? Oh, this is where I got this from. How do you go about doing that? Most of the brains out there need notes to do that, and it makes sense because 
sometimes you read something and then you you have to go back and this was my when i when i first started i, I had all these papers on my desk and i was like man i read this somewhere um and i think it was this paper but but when you have like like 200 plus papers on your desk it's like well this must be somewhere and i read it and then you start rereading all that stuff so i started making notes for that so if if there's a crucial thing um in a paper i write it down uh but on the other hand the longer you spend with one topic um there are coming so there's a some crucial papers that show up again and again and again so you don't have to go back your your brain just remembers uh so if i if i'm interested in the for example fit indices for uh for factor analysis i know this is who in bentler 99 I don't have to, well, who said something about this? I mean, this is a paper that is cited probably about 100 or 200,000 times. Or uh, if I'm talking about self-efficacy, I know that is Bandura 1977. So because every time you write about this topic, you go back to the basic paper. And at one point, you really know this paper um, because it is crucial to your research. And if you spend some time in a research topic, you get to know, even in in, in the, the the your former colleagues, uh, even if they aren't alive anymore, you get to know your colleagues in this topic. The one that you, that you meet on a conference that are out there doing not exact the same research, but kind of uh, the same topics, and and you will know the the researchers who came before you. Uh, who who were doing research in this topic? So you you start to get to to have a feeling for them and what was their paper and what are they saying and um, so it switches from getting into a new field where you where you feel kind of uncertain what to do what to read and then you read everything, but you will see that there are some well some superstars <laughs> let's say that some superstars in, in in certain topics and uh some people you will you will read over and over and over again until you you don't have to take notes for them so <laughs> at one point you're just like yeah that's the paper i i use almost every time <laughs> uh, that's actually very very pragmatic and that's true um you know just from where i'm at right now i realize the same thing and it's interesting I have not thought about that, but true, because that's the case, essentially, you know, you don't have to kind of write down, oh, this is the most important paper, because it will show up if it's the most important paper. So that's a very good point. Um, that gives some some ease, a little bit more ease to it. Um, and and there, are we, some, there are some good programs to visualize that. So I, I can't remember the the eggs, but there is an, an a shiny app you can use, and you can upload a paper, and it will it will show you everything the paper cited, and then you can upload another paper and see how they connect to each other, and you can mm. uh, come up with it with a time frame, and you see if there's one paper uh, that gets connected from everywhere. Mm. Um, that's probably one of the superstars in the field. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It, that, that goes into another question when, when we are still that, uh, researching phase and the literature review phase, um, how do you search for papers? And like, let's say you, you're on a new topic, you don't know anything about the topic. 
which databases do you consult and how do you search? Like what, is there any keyword strategy that you use so you don't end up reading anything that's, you know, just not related to what you actually want to read? That, that, that's a tough question because um, this comes with experience. So most of the time, um, if I go out there and start a, a literature research, I'm, I use Google Scholar. Why? Because I know what I'm looking for also most of the time. And if I talk to students, especially early career students, I would suggest to go to a specific database. So either it's PubMed in, in medical science or if it's EBSCO or whatever the, the psych archive or um, the, the APA research side or whatever is very specific to that field. Because if you don't know what you're looking for, these, these very specific data bases help you to look in, the, in kind of the right place. If you, if you know your search term and you know your, your kind of your authors and you know what you're looking for, Google Scholar will find a lot. But that is a problem if you're not knowing what, you, what you're looking for. Because Google Scholar will find you every shitty article that is out there and every, from every low-level or low-level journal. And then people are like, oh, my God, I have to read 200,000 papers. As, well... You probably don't have to to read the the twentieth reinvention of transformational leadership uh, in a very specific uh, data collection in Indonesia, uh, published in the Indonesian paper of Indonesian organizational research questions. Um, that will be your go-to paper if you're really interested in this part of the world. Um, so. Another suggestion would be know what kind of journals are good in your field of research. So, and, and you can, can look up the rankings. So is that an, a so-called A journal? Um, is that a, a, a good mid-tier journal, uh, journal? Is it, so how, and it's, it's not that an A journal won't publish a shitty research study from time to time. That happens, um, but not that often. <laughs> so um, the, the quality control gets higher. It's different. If you, if you look up something and if, you, if we talk about something like predatory journals who will just publish everything you give to them because you just throw money at them and this is their whole concept of, of uh, making money, then it's you will find a lot of questionable stuff, but if you have a journal that has all the, the basic scientific qualities, uh, peer-reviewed um, and, and blind peer-reviewed and, and, and all that stuff, is errors can happen, but it's less lucky. Um, so if, if you know... For example, I, I like to, to read a lot in organizational research methods in my field because 
I know that's a pretty good journal for new research methods in organizational psychology or organizational research. And um, so at one point, you will not have only your, your favorite authors or the superstars of authors. You will also have the superstars of journals. So getting to know a, a new field will see, well, most of the people in this field are publishing in that journal or this journal. So there, there aren't like 500,000 journals out there that are really good. And at one point, you will start to, to go to one of the journals, even not using a database or Google Scholar. You will go, well, um, I have this and that research question, and I need a... Is there a new way to analyze this data? Then I go to organizational research methods and have a look at them, for example. Most of the time, I, I you can, can use all these, and most people don't know that. There are these... Um, if you type in, uh, you, you can use the word and or, uh, and the end. So if you, if you, the, these, I don't know what they're called in, in, in English, like the, these bulge operator. Um, so, you, so you can use word A and word B if you have this uh, capital letter and between them. And this will help to, to, find more specific research. So most of the time it's, it's a question. If you come up and put in a research, uh, one of those keywords you're looking for, and you end up with three studies, your keyword probably is too specific. If you end up with 200,000 studies, it's probably not specific enough. So it depends on like getting a feeling like, does this make sense? Is that too specific? Because sometimes people show up and say, well, I did a research in on literature and there's absolutely nothing. And you sit there like, I know at least one person in this room who has published in this field. So did you use the, the right language? What what kind of, um, most, most sciences today use English publications. Even if you're like me from Germany, I'm, I'm publishing, most of my research is published in English. So if you just use a German keyword, you will not find my research. And then you sit in front of me telling me, well, there's absolutely no research. And I sit there and I, well, I published three studies on that topic, and which, which is kind of an embarrassing moment for both people at the table. And so... Even if you if you speak different languages, sometimes this makes sense. If you if you're looking for something that is specifically published in your language, for example, that is a questionnaire or um, local journals from your from your local organizations or that stuff. Sometimes people publish in the language. Sometimes it makes sense if you can read it, download it as well, because. If it's published in, in a, in a non-English um, journal, it doesn't mean it's bad science. It just means it's there are not so many people who can read this. Okay, yeah. And then another very probably basic question, but some like a question that might be raised more by students. 
Um, so oftentimes you end up and you see very good, you, you like finally found a very good paper. You feel like you, you were at the abstract, you're like, this is exactly it. And then it costs just $180 uh, for 30 minutes access. Like, um, and obviously, you know, universities have access to some, you know, some databases in limited amounts, but, uh, you know, from my experience and from the people I talk to, you know, a lot of times that's not possible to kind of get that paper, at least, you know, in the first, first research phase, any, any thoughts on this? Or is it just, you know, is there any, um, like workaround or is it just the wrong way to, um, approach this or, you know, <laughs> It's hard to give an advice that will stick to some audio tape for that. <laughs> um, first of all, I think that my general advice that I can talk freely about is, well, people should do open science. Um, make your research publicly available to everyone. Um, that ivory tower thing of, well, my research is so precious that no one else should read it. That is a, a weird mindset. Um, so even, even that kind of, of money-making and especially not from most of the time, it's not the scientist who sees the money, it's the publisher. And that money-making sparked some of my research because I was like, hell no, I'm not going to pay this money. I'm If I want to use that or see that questionnaire and I have to pay for it, I just create my own. Uh, so some of, some of my research was sparked by that. Um, on the other hand, your university should have access to most of the databases in your field. If not, talk to the librarian. Most of the time they, they can uh, come up with a deal with the university to find access to that database. There are some, um, that would be my first go to talk to someone and especially who is the person responsible for that? It's it's the librarian and it's if, if he or she um, can find a way to to tell you how to deal with it. Most of the time it's it's a some kind of a uh, client you have to use from your computer, even if you're home, all this stuff where you, well, I pretend like I'm in the university. And so my computer tells the, the database, well, uh, this computer comes from the university and it got that access to, to our database. Um, but there are some papers that are really hard to get. I think my legal advice <laughs> would be to use Google Scholar look for that paper because sometimes people, and they are allowed to do that, uploaded it in example for on ResearchGate and Google Scholar will find that. So there is a copy of that paper just lying around on ResearchGate waiting to be found, waiting to be read by people, um, even if you don't have access to the journal or the database. And the other version would be, well, there, there are some creative ways to find papers in this world um, if they are not available. I just say, go to an incredibly huge library in the internet. <laughs> <laughs> but I cannot recommend doing that because um, 
that would undermine the whole uh, publishing process uh, where publishers earn money. But it's it's really hard if, if you really need a paper. Even what, another legal thing would be to uh, write the, the corresponding author an email. Hmm. Because most of, if I do research and even if yeah. I, it was pre-open access, and it was, and or I did not have the the possibility to to pay the open access fee, and that's why I, I couldn't publish it open access. I'm as a researcher interested in people reading my work. Most of the time, none of us yeah. write a paper and say, "Well, at least no one <laughs> will read it." I put in <laughs> hundreds of hours of work, but wow. I published it and no one will ever read it. Amazing. Um, so most of the time we will send you the paper. The moment we get the emails like, oh, there's a person in the world interested in my research. Uh, yes, of course, I will send it to you. Have fun reading it. If you have any comments or do you want to talk about it, just let me know. Most, most researchers are very communicative about their work um, because th that is where we spend most of our time during the day with. We, we like to talk about our research. And this is one of the, how was your day questions? And people are just sitting in the office waiting for that to happen. When you see, well, there's a person from, from the other side of the globe, interesting in my research telling me, well, I, I had a, a good example of this would be a, a questionnaire I, I created and I got an email saying, well, we um, we want to use your question and we want to translate it and use it to um, screen uh, Ukrainian refugees on the on the Polish border um, and, and screen their mental health. And I was saying, well, that's an awesome idea. And it, it's, it's an open access uh, questionnaire. Um, here are the, the, the items. Um, please be aware that we only validate it as in, in, in German or, or US populations. So be aware that, that there might be some differences, but he, here it is. Um, let me know what happens with your research on, on the Ukrainian refugees. And you see that your, your research matters at one point. And, and none of the researchers, although are very few who say, well, damn, my research matters. I I hate to doing research that matters. Um, so most of the time, the the author, the one of the corresponding authors, will send you a copy of their paper. Just ask, communicate with them. They, we laugh when people communicate with us. That, that, that might sound funny, but that's very eye opening. <laughs> um, yeah, because people are afraid to talk to scientists. Yeah. It's like, well, well, I cannot ask this person. This person is a professor. Yes, but a professor is still a person. And uh, that person is sitting somewhere in an office in a lonely room and is just waiting for an email that says, Hello, I think your research matters, and I like to, to use your research in my research. So I need this paper. Do you have a copy? Um, wow, that's great to know. Yeah. Um, one thing that you know, I'm always trying to think of uh, a question that might be kind of in going and goes in a similar direction. One thing that is in a different spot in the whole. Um, uh, you know, in the whole process, but kind of goes into that, you know, legal looking at other papers, 
you know, um, finding inspiration. You know, I, f I feel like um, it would be worth talking about uh, plagiarism. Um, so um, kind of, you know, obviously, you know, I would, I would think the you know, the, the not, you know, the average person wouldn't go into research being like, Oh, I'm just going to copy the whole thing. And no one will realize. I, I don't think that would be the issue we need to talk about, but more so, you know, find them. what's that? Actually, you will find students who copy whole oh. papers and then they, they, they show up in your, in your office. And well, I have absolutely no idea why I failed this paper. And you're just, print out the original one and say, well, this was published at one point and you just copied it. You have these people. <laughs> they're, they're out there. But they're not most of the, the people who copy something. So it's a fine line. But my, my basic advice would be don't do it. <laughs> don't, don't copy anything. And But sometimes it's... People are not aware that they are doing it. That's what, I'm for, what I wanted to talk about. Yeah. So, yeah. like, basically, say you know, because you know, I did some research into that just because I'm like, you know, this would be the worst thing. You you are having you have your perfect thesis, and then just because you didn't know that this specific thing would be considered plagiarism, you you are considered you know having done plagiarism. So like. So yeah, talking about this kind of you know what should be you what should you be aware of when you do your literature review and like kind of talk about other studies and kind of getting inspiration as you said you know it's a lot of inspirational process as well kind of looking at how how did they structure their ideas could I take one of these ideas and you know kind of going through all that without ending up with uh, you know plagiarism. There are different kind of plagiarism. So there's a whole. Well, I, I just took it, copy and pasted it. That that's pretty easy to to find. Then there is uh, structural plagiarism. So if you read a book chapter, and sometimes um, I read a, a a term paper, and it's like, well, I have kind of the feeling I read this before, and if I yeah, because this is the the book we are using during the course. And it's like, well, this is chapter seven, just rewritten. And that is plagiarism as well, because if you use the whole structure, um, then there is taking figures out of, of other papers and not citing them, especially if people crop the, the source, that is plagiarism as well. Just um, showing a figure from somewhere else and presenting it as your own. And that is the basic idea of plagiarism. And that is why it's most of the time it's not a passive act because plagiarism, when you think about it, it's taking work from someone else and presenting it as your own. And when you do science or research, you must be aware that you are on the shoulders of someone else most of the time. Unless you're going into that wide field of snow where there's no print and no man has ever gone before, all right. But still then you use something some other person has done before or used before. And Coming up with an idea or presenting an idea, just cite its source. And if so, if I'm if I'm talking about, let's take self-efficacy as an example here, and I present, well, 
does self-efficacy have this and that effect? And self-efficacy is the idea that, and I don't cite Bandura. I present that as my own idea. I, I'm telling the world or the reader in that case, well, here is my definition of self-efficacy. That is absolutely my idea. Uh, I came up with this. That is plagiarism because someone else defined this construct. And ignoring these shoulders and being silent about them, that is plagiarism. If I take a figure from someone else or a table from someone else, these people work to create this. And I'm ignoring their work and their effort they put into it. And I'm not citing them. I present this table as my own. That would be plagiarism. Um, on the other hand, there are some people who think, well, if I cite everything, that would be a smart idea. Um, and then they just come up with pages of pages of, of direct citations, just citing everything in quotes and then presenting the source. Well, then you have copy and pasted a lot from different uh, papers but you haven't done anything by yourself. So most of the, of the scientific writing rule sets say, well, direct citation or the direct quotation of something else should be kept to a minimum because otherwise you're just copying the text of someone else. Even if you say, well, um, she wrote that on page number 10 and then she wrote that on page number 11. And then she wrote that on page number 12. And that is your page number 10, 11, and 12. Um, that is still her work, not yours. And so most of the time, it's just ignoring that it's not your idea. And sometimes it's overselling. People like to oversell, well, I have all these amazing ideas and I have all these amazing results. And it's well, these are not exactly your ideas or your results. Just stick to the stuff you have done and, and cite the sources of the ideas. And especially sometimes people say, well, I, I wasn't aware that I was doing plagiarism. And as well, in all the possible combinations of the English or German or Chinese or Hindi language, it's really a tiny probability that you created the same sentence as the person. So basically that, yeah. So basically if you are aware that you are not, um, you know, stepping into that, um, kind of field of ambiguity, ambiguity and uh, plagiarism, then you're probably not doing it. If you, if you have to ask yourself, do I do, actually right now, Am I doing plagiarism? You probably are. Hmm, yeah. Because you, you have to ask your, the, the question. Because if I'm writing something and I, I'm, I'm citing my sources and I say, well, I have this idea and it, it comes from that place. And, and well, uh, research previous research results show that. And I cite the sources. And, and if I do that, and, and, and it's kind of a craft doing it. And... All I'm where, where I cannot find a source is me talking about the stuff I'm I did. And 
interpreting my results. You, you will not find, in, especially in the discussion part, the discussion part is where the, the whole set comes to, well, what could it mean? What, what do my results really mean? And how, and even there, most of the time you will find kind of the same sources in the discussion as you had in the beginning. Yeah, because that is a, a complete circle of literature. Um, because you're basing your ideas on some literature, and then you're discussing them on the current literature. And even if it's well, I I, I pretty much had the same results as previous research, or my study is diverging in its results from previous research. You're you still cite, but. Um, just don't oversell the stuff you do and, and don't um, be aware that if you're using someone else's work, just cite them. It's not that hard. Is there, is there a way to overdo this? So like, oh, let, let, let me give you an example. Um, it's just so like to get an understanding of this. Say um, you would read something, you would read papers and then you're like, ah, this, you know, the way that um, this paper um, is built, let's say, like they have a chapter and um, they have their logic and how they uh, present that chapter. Um, and you're like, I like this idea, um, but it's not exactly what, I'm wanna, what I want to write, but kind of taking the idea how the chapter structure and putting it in my idea, but a different context, like in different uh, content as well. Do I have to say like, uh, um, so I took, I read the study and then, you know, they had their kind of like structure and I thought, you know, I would take this for my, or is that an internal process that doesn't have to be, you know, kind of made explicit every single time? What's, what's the, what's the take on that? Uh, you know, yeah. that's my, my yeah. favorite answer. It depends. Um, but it, it's different. If, if I'm, I feel influenced, I feel really influenced by this. So um, we just, we just um, submitted a, a, review for for measurement of ageism we just submitted a review of that with with some of my colleagues and we try to to rate just to have an example for that we we have we try to rate um the the quality of the measurements we were looking at and we were so because there is a really good paper by pangalo et al from 2015 on it's a review on all the measurements and their definitions of someone's uh, at the door um, of resilience. And it's a really, really beautiful paper. And we cited this work. Why? Because we use resilience in, in, in our um, in our own publication. No, but we felt we were so influenced by how they approached um rating the quality of the measurement that we cited and were well we were in, we were something like well um we were inspired by this and that paper how to approach this and so we cite their work because they did it in a beautiful way and using that and just giving this this credit to their work to how they managed all these these this huge set of data and approaches to that and, and just put it in a beautiful concept and a, and a beautiful way to rate it and using that and feeling inspired. But if, you, if you're inspired by something, just cite it. 
Yeah. Just I like that. Yeah. That that, that yeah, is a good idea. Yeah, that, that perfectly answers the question because I was like, is there a way to kind of like where, you know, you as a reader, you're like, why did he cite this? This was not necessary. But there's basically no, nothing like that. It's basically you just give the credit uh, if you feel like it, if you really feel like, okay, I actually bo like borrowed something from over here. As soon as you feel that, just kind of uh, give that credit and then you're, you're well off. Perfect. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah, then I would say let's move on to uh, let's see let's see what what would be a good um, uh, next point on this. Um, um, so something in general um, as we're going through this process of research um, and then writing at the end. Um, how do you um, what do you do when you feel like you're not making progress so that's more of a general approach mindset um, you know we talked about mindset in another episode but yeah your whole um, approach to the or is there is there even a day like that in your life and you know that at the place that you are right now where you're like i actually don't know where this is going i don't feel i'm making progress I know these days. Um, and it's really hard because a lot of the time it, it, it is a shitload of work. And seeing that process from, from the beginning to the end can, can be demotivating, can make you kind of crazy or exhausted. And all. I have these moments as well. So what I like to do is chunking. Um, so I, where's my next step? What, what do I need to do to, to get my next step? And even if I start writing, I'm not sitting down and writing from start to finish. I, I come up with chunks. I say, well, today, if I want to, if I want to go into work and write, um, I need to finish this chunk. Um, that can be, well, a subsection of something or whatever the chunk is. Um, and then I go in and I finish this chunk of work. And if I'm finished after two hours, lucky me, I go out and, and have a coffee in the sun, uh, not especially in November right now, but <laughs> on, a, on a more sunny day, I do something that is fun, that, that, keeps me going that that gives me some energy but it can happen that you you uh, have to work of a chunk and it takes eight hours it takes 10 hours well but i have to finish that chunk of work because and i'm in from my natural spiritual animal kind of being i'm a sloth i'm i'm super lazy so most of the time, my motivation to, to work is, well, this works need to be done. And if I'm finishing it now, future Timo will have more time off. And future Timo will be like, oh, yeah, thank you, past Timo, for, for doing that. Because every sentence that is finished and that is complete and every section that is complete is something I don't have to write in the future. That's great. That's great advice. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because, um, yeah, I'll actually try this um, because then you, you're also more, you know, 
focused on the result and um, you know you're not like you kind of like find maybe you find smarter ways to get to where you want to get versus you just kind of sit down and maybe waste time and that right and um, yeah I had another thing that came to my mind when we were talking um, about the topic we were talking just before this one when I, I read some papers uh, and you know as far as I'm concerned when when, I, when I'm citing indirectly um, that's you know what I would think I would cite the the source and then I would cite um, kind of the rough like you know the pages I got this from so like let's say page 31 to 42 or 33 or something um, but sometimes I just go through the research and then I find papers which just cite the whole article and I'm like where did they take this from is that is that scientific at all or did I just read a shitty article so to say like, no, it depends on your rule set it depends on your okay. on your rule set and your citation rule set yeah. um, I cannot speak for, for every rule set that is out there there, there are many ways to, to cite stuff in general and especially in in psychology, is if you if you take a a, a basic idea or a result from somewhere, uh, according to the to the APA seventh edition manual, um, you just cite the source. If I have an, a direct quotation, I will have to cite the page where I got this from because it's not well well uh, I read this in this paper, but it's like. Crispin 2022 said or defined um, podcast as quotation, then I would use the, the page. But this can be totally different in your set of rules. So you have to be aware, um, what is your publication manual out there? What is your rule set? Um, so they're they're completely there's APA there's Chicago there's Vancouver there is some more stuff I, I think I, I don't even know how many um, publication manuals are out there and your field of research will probably use a different one than the one of the American Psychological Association publication manual seventh edition and. So you you have to be aware what what kind of rule set does your field of research uses and read it because most of the time this these publication manuals are not only saying well you should cite this and that this way or the other way it says well how the whole manuscript should look like how you use headings, how you, what you should report most of the time. Even the, the APA manual tells you what to report and, and, and statistical numbers or statistical scores, what to report. Um, so and mo most people don't read it. And I'm like, well, I think I, I did comply to it, but I'm not sure because I've never opened the, the, the manual um, just go to your library, ask for the manual in your field, and have a look at it. Or something like the the online writing labs or, or all that stuff. Have a look. What what kind of of rule set do I'm writing and and citing stuff? Hmm. Uh, one one kind of questioning 
question, so to say, that I, that just came into my mind. You know, because that's the experience that I had when when I tried to go back to to the original source. Sometimes I was like, I was reading the original source, and, and it was very hard to tell if the author kind of really, um, you know, uh, depicted the original work in the right way. And um, does that doesn't that get lost if you don't, you know, like how, like say you are, we'll talk about this as well in, in a second, like evaluating a paper from, you know, the standpoint of a professor. If you look at that and you're like, you know, is there a way to kind of figure out if the person actually, um, you know, took the right idea out of that page? Because I feel like, you know, then just every researcher could just put anything in there and just cite the whole thing and then it's kind of like done. Um, like how do is it? I don't know. I, I was a bit confused when I thought about this. That, that's why you can go back. That that is why there is a source cited there. You can go to the source and have a look at it. Most of the time, people are too lazy to do that, and that is why there are some errors in the history of science that got repeated over and over again because you, you have a paper with a groundbreaking idea or saying something and someone else misinterprets that idea and cites the source, but the second paper becomes more famous. More people read the second paper and people are not, well, should I go back to the original source? Because that, that's a, probably a paper from the 70s or 80s. And then they start repeating or citing the misinterpretation of it. And this happens from time to time. That is why it's important not to pick an idea from the second source, but go back to the, to the primal source, I would say. And sometimes, even if these old papers are from time to time, hard to read because diff, uh, language changed and a scientific language, say, and scientific writing changed as well. And sometimes older manuscripts are harder to read because it's, it's a different time. And from time to time, you, you just have to do it. You have to go back to the original source and have a look at it and ask yourself, is that what the author wrote? Yeah. Because that, that, that was that, my experience. That is the difference between trusting in, in the process and have a look by yourself and, and read stuff. And yeah, because I was like, you know, I'm writing my, my thesis and I'm like, how is it possible that I, you know, I'm, I'm reading this original source and it's not what they the other person was saying. I was like, but yeah, probably that's just hours that, you know, we all humans that just happens. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a good perspective. Um, I, I just wanted to ask you, uh, how, how much time you have left? So I can kind of, uh, see what kind of questions I could, uh, fit in. I think we have flow? 15 to 20 minutes, but otherwise we, I think that the podcast will be a, and we, <laughs> yeah. we can split it into, into several. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do seven, seven of them. <laughs> no, and I'm, so let me see. Um, what else would be a big one? Um, I think a, a big one, from my point of view, yeah. would be to talk about the, how do I write? 
because that is something most people or most students ask me before we before we come. Like, what is a a good paper from from my point of view? Because that is an that's a really easy question if you follow all the steps. And I think the 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 major question behind all that is how do I write a good paper? And Coming back to to the the beginning, where I said, well, if you have done rigorous research and did every, there's one research question, and you you try to answer, and you pick the right methods, and if you've all done of that, that is the basic of a good paper. There is no good paper without good research, but writing is an, a craft by itself, and I always tell to my students, I tell them, well, imagine you're sitting in a bar. Because most students can't imagine that. Um, so sitting in a bar and you have a very, very quiet fellow right next or left to you. So that person just sit there staring in, in, their, in their beer or their preferred drink, whatever they, they, they drink, coffee or tea, water, whatever they want, they should drink in your story. So, and you wanted to tell them a story and the story is your paper. And the whole storyline um, basically goes like this. Hey, I have an interesting idea. Do you know why that idea is interesting? Here's the story why it is interesting. So, that is interesting. And if you think about it, and we, we are still in the theory part, we are just in the opener. If you think about it, the whole thing is based on, there's your theory. Then you go like, well, that all, all that stuff I told you brings me to my question hypothesis. I think we should, well, if we, if we want to ask this question, we should do it the right way. We should do it like this method. And I did it like that. And guess what the results are? The results are results. So given my question, my data and my results, well, I think the point is discussion. And then there are your references. At no point in this whole discussion with our quiet fellow drinking her or his tea, beer, whiskey, is that they should look up and ask, I don't get it. Where did that come from? Huh? What? No, you should... Tell the whole story without the reader, and that we just call him or her reader. <laughs> um, have a, has a look at the paper and asks herself, "Well, where does that come from?" And then you then you have a a strict storyline. And the other metaphor I give to to students is like, imagine you have one of your most favorite streaming uh, organizations, and they have one of those short series. And so you have only six, four to six episodes, and you want to tell the whole story. So you don't come up with characters in episode two that will never show up again. 
You can do that if you have a follow-up season, but you only have to, this is a short series and you only have four to six episodes. There, there, there will be no season two. So everything that, that is happening and there should be no open endings. So if people start talking about this and that theory in the in the in the in in the beginning or the the theoretical foundation and this theory has absolutely nothing to do with your research question or your discussion why are you bringing that theory into your your mini series so basically it's it's if you go back to, to storytelling, and that is the, from my point of view, is, is kind of the high art of writing is after you did good research, and I'm, I'm not getting tired of telling people, well, you need good research. Um, you need rigorous research. You need good research. You need good craft in research. But when you're writing, the high art of it is to have a strategic storytelling, to tell a story from an from a good opener to the to the last sentence. And when you think about a good book, and scientific writing is completely different to literature writing. Yes? Yeah, they are, this is more exact. It's there's one thing just has one name. And but if you if you pick up a paper and it has a good start so there's a good first sentence or something that will that will pull people into the paper that is a good paper if you have a a question or, or a situation an anecdote or whatever um especially we we wrote one on a it's not a scientific paper it it's a paper on a scientific paper but um, it was, well, the security conference in Munich. There is the specific picture where you see this huge table this year in, in Munich, and there are only men making the decisions. There is no woman in this picture. And we, we use this picture as a starting point to talk about a gender gap and, and why there are so few women in, in leadership and what are the barriers to women in leadership. But it's it's a it's an anecdote to pull people into reading this because it's most people that have seen this picture will go like, oh yes, I remember this picture. And then they start reading. And especially when it comes to your conclusion, what is your last sentence? What is the thing that the reader will take away. Well, if, if the reader is only, just imagine a person who, who's only remembering the last sentence that person would read. Don't end with a shitty sentence like, we need more research. We always need more research. There's absolutely nothing out there where we wouldn't say, well, more research would be nice. Um, so th that is a useless last sentence. We need more research. Like, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, what what is the the thing you want to your your take home message? And that is how you structure a good paper. The rest is 
how it's done in the field, what, what is the craft, what do you need to report in the field, what kind of, how do you report your data collection, your data analysis, all this is very technical and very specific to the field. But speaking generally about writing, it's more like what is the storyline here? Is there one storyline? It is a comprehensive storyline. Um, are there open endings? Because they shouldn't be. And do I have a good start of my paper that pulls people, that, that makes people want to read my paper? Because most of the time people are not showing up saying, well, today I'm going to read some scientific papers because I have some free time. And what, what is my, my main message I want, to, I want to tell the world before they leave my paper? Hmm. That that came you know one question came up um, that's also probably not specific to the to the area of research but more general that might be interesting here um, and this goes back to the organization part when we're at this point you know where we've done we've got great ideas we've got great research we you know we've conducted uh, our you know empirical research but we've also um, have all literature we are writing um, is there any process that you found for yourself how you can draw from all your notes that you were kind of taking and they're all over the place and now you put them together do you do you use softwares do you um, just generally any any approach to to that whole kind of messy <laughs> process of then putting something very concise and very comprehensive uh, together at the end first of all most there are, there are databases who, who help you out, like EndNote, Citavi, uh, Zotero, um, to to handle literature and to make citing more more easily. Um, on the other hand, it's going back to draft after draft. So most of the, there are, there are two I would say two kind of people. There are people who. Think about the the stuff they are writing in their head over and over again. And then they come up with a pretty good first draft. And then there are people just writing down, just writing and have a not so perfect first draft. But it doesn't matter because no one in this world will submit their first draft. Even Stephen King will not submit his first draft of a novel. Maybe some so, students will. <laughs> some students will, yeah. And here's my advice. It's not a good idea. Um, because you have to go back and you have to go back till the point you hate your own paper. All the stuff you... So, I just had the discussion with, with a with a PhD student today. She, she said, well, I'm starting of hating my own paper. And I was like, welcome to the club. Most of us hate their paper before we submit it. And then it comes back with reviewer comments. And then we hate it more and more. And at one point, but it gets better. It's not about, do I have to read it again? It's about, can I make this better? And can I make this more comprehensible? Can I make this more reader-friendly? Can I cut out words that are obsolete? But most adjectives, you can like, oh, this was amazing work. This was work. 
It's good enough. Um, don't oversell your stuff. And you you go back to draft number one, to draft number two, and you will have to go back at one point to draft number 32. And sometimes it takes that many drafts. And that's what I mean with that. They are these people who really work a lot in their head and come up with a better first draft, and they probably get to draft seven, eight, nine, ten. And then there are the ones who just have a, a weird first draft, but they go back more often. And in the end, the result could be the same. It just takes more drafts, and some people can work writing in their head, and some people need to see what they do. At one point, I would print out the whole thing, and this is how I like to work because then I get a haptical at that point. I just put everything on the floor and look at it. From, from on top of it, I just look at it, and I'm like, does this look like a paper? That's step number one. So, so is there some order in it? Can I see the order and structure of my thoughts in how the, the paper is structured? And then I take a marker and crawl along my papers and have a look for words that need to be culled for words that are obsolete, for words that I, or even sentences order or, or um, yeah, I just switched to German. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm telling about recent. I just switched to German. Or whole sections where you, where you just, that you see at that point and say, well, the whole paper would work without that. And then you, you cull it from the paper. You mark it and you get rid of it. Or you, you come at a point where you say, well, my silent listener would go, I don't get where this is coming from. Why? There, there is a jump in the story. There is, there is a gap here. Then I have to need to go back to my desk and close that gap. But, but it's, it's draft after draft. And that is why most student papers that are really shitty are done by people who tell you proudly, well, I just wrote it last night and then I handed in my thesis. And it's like, how many drafts did you write last night? I just wrote it down. I was like, well, some pe there might be even some, some people who, who can write a decent piece of work like that. But... Most of the time, it's not it's not you. <laughs> so um, there is a chance that you will that that you will just have a lucky pot shot um, at a at a good draft, but you need time. You need for writing. You need time to have a first draft. Go back, have a look at it, and examine it, and come up with a better draft. Hmm. That that, brings that would be my stuff. best advice for writing. <laughs> <laughs> that brings us perfectly to to the to the last question, the last part. Um, especially interesting for every student listening. Um, you've reviewed and um, evaluated uh, a lot of um, a lot of student work as well, and a lot of final pieces, papers. Um, 
how do you evaluate them and what's uh, what advice would you give to students what what kind of mistakes do you see over and over again what where where do people think they can save time but they shouldn't where could people actually save time where they waste time um kind of i give you all of this inspiration just talk talk freely about what advice would you give to students for their thesis first of all is understand the task so what am i writing am i writing a term paper am i writing a bachelor thesis a master thesis a phd or a paper that should be published these are completely different things um what is the assignment here so what did my my professor or my teacher what did he or she tell me that i should do in in case of a term paper if i should especially if i have the term papers we write as is well they they should come up with a scientific discussion on an issue so did i have a look at the current literature and come up with the discussions from different point of view that are uh, out there in in current science um then there's this bachelor thesis which is mostly just can i show that i understood the assignment and i know how to do the craft in my field nothing more nothing less then there is um the master thesis which is basically uh riding a bicycle with those tiny wheels on the side these aids it's like well well i have an idea what i'm doing but i have still a net of protection around me and i am for, for most people a master thesis is the the last scientific thing they do so but they the the assignment here is showing that you know the craft of every detail in your field of research like how do i do literature research how do i write comprehensively how do i do good research how do i answer a research question and then there's the phd which is riding a bicycle without those aids on the side is that well i can do it on my own and and showing that you are able to produce research and then there is publishing research and most of the time phd is one and the same and uh, but you you keep on publishing after you've done your your phd hopefully uh, otherwise you just perish in this field um but it's what 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 is the what is the journal about who is the editor um what what kind of stuff do they like and and, and how um do i need a, a multi data point study do i need a whatever it is in your field and um but it's most of the time it's writing in a comprehensive it's research in a comprehensive way written down and um so it's first is understanding the assignment then is did i cite all my sources that is something uh, i see in every term paper as well there is like three pages without one source that is basically impossible in a bachelor in psychology um that person did not invent the last three pages on on their own and then is is there this this kind of storyline 
or do I have a gap in my storyline? Does my my reader look up and says, where is that coming from? I don't understand where 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 the whole argument jumped from A to B without a bridge between A and B. That is another part. And then it's well, plagiarism is a thing, so don't don't do it. And well, th then then it's. So th there can be a, a good scientific term paper or a good scientific thesis, um, which is still an A or A plus, but then you have these, these scientific papers that are really, or, or theses that are really, really well written and they, they are fun to read, which is in the, in the sense of giving a grade, it would be pretty much the same grade as a very good done scientific research paper, but it's more fun. And it's different to, to talk to these people and give them feedback and say, well, I see you're talented in writing. You, you have an idea and sometimes it's, you see really bad writing and people get frustrated by it. So, well, I cannot write and it's nothing personal. There are, there is no writer in this world who just dropped out of the womb and was a writer. Um, it's a craft and as any other craft it gets better the more you do it so if you if you're good in research in your field but you're not really good in writing the only thing you can do is write write and then write some more and draft and and review the drafts and and keep working on the drafts and I when I when I teach in a master's course Often I go back with them and say, well, just have a look at your bachelor thesis and see how bad they are written most of the time. And people are like, no, you just do that to, to make us feel bad. And no, I, I, I want to see, I want, I want you to experience the, how good you have become compared to that. And even if I go back to, to old papers of mine, I'm like, Sometimes it's like, well, this is really good. And sometimes like, oh my God, I did not write that in this way. This is really bad. And especially if I go back to my student papers, whew, <laughs> they're not really good. So this, this is a craft and you can learn it. It's not like there's a born writer. It's, it's, some people have a talent for it because they have a talent for words and sentences. And sometimes I see a student paper and I have a look for plagiarism and I'm, I'm shocked that they haven't because they're, they're just gifted and they're talented in writing. They have a good feeling for words and, and writing, but you can train it. That, that would be my, my main message. Even if you're not good being a, a or not good in writing during your time as a bachelor student doesn't mean you cannot be a great writer as a master student because most of the time for people you need feedback you need feedback on your writing to improve your writing and you don't need feedback um, from from cheerleaders just people telling you oh my god this is so amazing you're you're the best writer ever you need honest feedback and i think uh, 
there we come back to to the name of your podcast. So you have to surround yourself with the right people giving you feedback on your writing because this would improve your craft. This will improve the stuff. And most of us have a blind side in writing. There are some people who write these terribly long sentences that no one will, and they're like, oh my God, I'm like Hemingway. And but no, that if you're a scientific writer, that, that sucks. Then there are people like me who have problems with the details. Sometimes I have problems reading details. So I end up writing a sentence that if I read it in my tempo of reading, it's totally clear for me. And other people are saying, well, Timo, there's another one of your Yoda sentences. So I I try to, to fuck up the whole sentence, but I, I don't see it. I just write it down. And so knowing your team that you need for, for feedback in writing. So I need someone who's good and seeing details in my team, in my corner, who, who can give me feedback on that. Or finding a new word in, in some thesaurus, like, oh my God, that is a beautiful word. I, I, in my next paper, I want to use that word. And I, I, use, I, I found one, or I, I've known this word and it was plethora. Plethora is a very beautiful word. And I always wanted to use it in a, in a paper. And one of the last papers, I used it. And I was so happy writing this word. Like, oh, my God, finally, I used this <laughs> word. And it's, it's about good and honest feedback. And it's about improving your craft. This is basically what writing is about. I like it. And thank you very much for, for everything. Like for, I'm, I'm, I'm just reflecting back on, on, the, on our whole conversation and um, the lessons that I could take away just from having that conversation. And I'm pretty sure that um, that will be the same for a lot of people listening. And um, also thank you for drawing the circle perfectly back to the name of the podcast. Um, that is what good <laughs> writing is about. <laughs> yeah, I can see Draw, Basically, it's drawing a circle. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's been very engaging. Uh, it's been very fun as well. Um, there's been a few good laughs. So... Um, yeah, I just wanted to give the word to you and just maybe just that for the people who don't know you yet, maybe who haven't uh, listened to our other episode, um, just give them a few words, uh, final words from you, maybe something you would love to um, like send people to, direct them to, maybe people that who are interested in research who would love to read your papers, where could they read them or anything you would love to say and there's a few final notes. As a final note, I would just say, well, science is pretty awesome. <laughs> it's it's a pretty awesome process. It's a it's a really good school of thought to approach the world. And getting better in scientific writing will help you to think more clearly, to think more clearly and to communicate more clearly in a lot of stuff, even if you're an very excited about stuff and then me switching to German in, in the mid sentence, uh, being excited, but, but it, it helps you to, to find a way to, to look in th at the world, understand the world and communicate about the world. So I think my final sentence would be fuck yeah, science. Great. And, um, I will, I will put uh, all the details in the, in the show notes as well about, about you as well. And, um, yeah, Timo Lawrence, 
Thank you very much. And um, thank you for having me. Talk to you soon. And yeah, man, it's been a great episode. See you soon.